Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we have been very busy. We just finished the Love Life California Conference in Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills on January 29th. But today I wanted to kind of just do an evergreen episode for you as we head into this politically divisive year with Roe versus Wade being close to overturned and the country more divided than ever before. I thought it would be fun to just sort of return to first principles and do a training talk and episode to just gird up your loins and get you equipped to engage the culture of death. So, so this episode is called Smart Answers to Tough Critics. Just going through the case for life, the objections to our position, the best way to engage in conversations about abortion, rhetorical strategies on how to engage and sort of uh, weave your way through the abortion conversation to stay in the driver's seat of the conversation, to not get heated, to not get anxious, to not get upset, to not allow those that you discuss the abortion issue with to define the terms of engagement and distract you down rabbit trails that really don't have anything to do with your pro-life case, the mistakes and fallacies that pro-choicers commit and how to be aware of them, how to be aware of objections that cloud the real issue because pro-choicers often don't want to engage on the primary issue, which is what is the unborn, and for being able to identify arguments that undermine human equality for all of us. And then lastly, how to ask good questions, very strategic questions to get people to think more deeply about the abortion issue. So this is one that you're going to want to save in your podcast app uh, to return to. Uh, this is not current events. This is just a forever episode um, that you can return to. And if you listen to this a few times, uh, boy, you are going to be a very effective and dangerous <laughs> opponent to the culture of death <clears throat> and, a, and a successful advocate for preborn children. And we need more and more of those today in this culture, in this moment, more so than any other. Uh, buckle up your you're in for a treat. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome back to the show today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. As I said, this episode is called Smart Answers to Tough Critics to just give you that 30,000-foot overview of the abortion issue, the common flaws, misunderstandings, misconceptions, fallacies, ways to engage, questions to ask, and how you can more successfully be an ambassador for the unborn, a voice for the unborn. So before you even think about responding in an argument or conversation over abortion, here's your step one. We're going to go through six steps today, okay? Step one in any argument over abortion that you need to keep in the forefront of your mind so that you're not thinking that you have to be on the defensive and you have to be ready. No, no. Step one in any debate or argument about abortion. You need to focus like a laser on three key words. And those key words are syllogism. Syllogism. <laughs> syllogism. What's a syllogism? A syllogism is a way to linear, linearly lay out your premises in a, in, a, in a very cohesive way so that if each premise is accurate, true, and valid in your argument, regardless of how many premises you have, then the conclusion naturally follows, right? So this way you can lay out your argument in a way that says, well, is this premise correct? And then you can have a debate or conversation with the person who disagrees with you. Like, okay, well, pre this premise is correct. What about the second premise? And if, hey, if both are valid, true, and correct, then my conclusion of my argument, it, it stands. It's valid. It's true. And so this helps people just think very clearly 
about the abortion issue. So step one when you're having conversations about abortion is you need to remember the word syllogism. What's the pro-life syllogism, right? What's our argument? What is our case for life? Here it is. Our syllogism is laid out with two premises and a conclusion. The first premise in our syllogism is that it's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Pretty basic, and you can kind of get everyone on board with that, can't you? You're, not, you're probably not going to meet a pro-choicer who goes, oh, no, there's a bunch of innocent human beings. We should definitely be able to kill for no reason at all. <laughs> right? So It's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Conclusion, therefore, abortion is wrong. Okay? Now, premise two is obviously where the abortion debate happens, right there. Does abortion intentionally kill an innocent human being, and I'll add, without proper justification? That's, that's an important thing to add, um, meaning there is no justification whatsoever for intentionally killing innocent unborn human beings or innocent human beings at all. Okay, so that's our argument. The conclusion is, therefore, abortion is always wrong. So that's your step one. Remember syllogism, syllogism. So <clears throat> anywhere that the abortion debate or conversation goes from there that you're having, you can remember, well, what's my primary case? What's my primary case? What's my argument? What's my syllogism? And therefore, anything that detracts from that is a distraction from that, is not relevant to that, uh, you should be able to call out by saying, well, that's an interesting point, but that's not what I'm arguing. That's not what I'm saying. So what is wrong with my pro-life argument? Attack my argument. So that's step one. Step two, with every objection you hear, begin by asking this question. How does this refute my syllogism? How does this refute my argument? Right? Because if it doesn't, it's really not relevant. It, it might be important uh, peripheral conversations or issues that the abortion advocate addresses, and they might, be, they might be deserving of a conversation and debate at another time. But if it's not directly refuting your pro-life syllogism, your argument, then it does nothing to refute the pro-life position <laughs> that the unborn child at all stages of their humanness, their humanity, has a natural right to life that cannot be taken or should not be taken through abortion. Does that make sense? So with every objection you hear to the pro-life argument, begin by asking the question, how does this refute my argument, my syllogism, my case for life? So we're gonna go through some of these objections here right now, but for each of these objections below, there is a one-word answer. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. There's actually a one-word answer to every objection we're about to go through that you'll hear in the abortion debate that doesn't directly refute the pro-life syllogism, okay? I need you to sort of channel your inner 15-year-old, maybe you're 15 right now, so you can, you can uh, relate, but if you're older, I need you to go back to those pubescent, all right, uh, <laughs> puberty years, and I want you to channel your inner teenager by asking the one-word question, uh, so, so, so what? So, so. <laughs> Remember asking that to your parents? You need to do this. You should do this. So, so, so I don't want to. That, we need you to sort of get a little sassy with me right now and remember that one-word answer to all of these alleged objections to the pro-life position because each of these objections to the pro-life position deserve that response. So, so what? So, so what does that have to do with the pro-life argument I just offered to you. Do you see where I'm going with this? All of these objections I'm about to address are peripheral rabbit trail distraction issues that in no way disprove, disprove the pro-life argument. Okay, so let's go through some of these objections. So you'll hear something like this from pro-choicers, right? 
oh, so you're pro-life, huh? You're pro-life. So you want to prosecute women who have abortions, huh? You want to throw them in jail. You want to take them to the gas chambers, right? Because you say it's an unborn human being. Therefore, it has the same rights as born people. So if mothers are killing their unborn children, how is that different than Nazis killing Jews? So if you're consistent, you're pro-life, right? Okay, let's throw all the women in jail. Let's gas them in the chambers. And if not, if you don't want to do that pro-lifer, then don't tell me you're actually pro-life because you would certainly support doing that if someone else was killing another innocent human being. I guess you don't really believe the unborn are fully human, huh? Do you ever heard something like sort of an objection like that before? They're trying to question your pro-life credentials, right? By, by trying to create a situation in which you as a pro-lifer may not support the same type of responses to abortion as you would to the Holocaust. And if you don't, then they're saying you're inconsistent, therefore your case is bunk, right? And, and I just, I boom, I just owned you. I just owned you. You, you heard that? Well, okay, remember what, what step two? With any argument, ask the question, how does this refute my syllogism? Remember? Okay, so how does that attack the pro-life argument? So let's grant this case, this argument, that we're not really pro-life because we, maybe we don't support treating pregnant women in the same way that we would support treating Nazis who gassed the Jews, right? Uh, let's grant that alleged inconsistency. How does this refute my syllogism? Let's say I am inconsistent, pro-choicer. Does that refute my syllogism? Can the unborn be human even if I'm inconsistent? Does that make sense? So let's say I did not want to throw women in jail, that I did not want to maybe, you know, give the death penalty to abortionists, okay, even though I, I think that they should be hung. Um, let's say I, did, I, I didn't support that um, and I am inconsistent. Does that disprove the pro-life argument? that the unborn child is fully human from the moment of conception and therefore deserves the same legal protections in our laws, that it should be illegal to kill them. Uh, no, My, that case for the pro-life position for the humanity of the unborn can still stand even if I'm inconsistent. But by the way, this is important. The reason why pro-lifers don't seek criminal prosecution of mothers is this. This is important, okay? Now, I do believe in a post-Roe world, in, in, well, in a, in a position where abortion is illegal at the federal level, that there should be legal consequences, obviously for abortionists who are performing illegal abortions, but also for women who, who go and give cash to someone to illegally kill their unborn child. I do believe there should be legal penalties for doing that, okay? Um, and we can get into that at another time, uh, but I, sh I believe it should be treated similar as if a mother paid a hitman to kill her three-year-old. You know, the hitman is the murderer, and the parents would be the accomplices to murder for being involved with the killing of their child, even if they didn't directly kill their child. So I am consistent in that way, but there is a reason why pro-lifers have not sought criminal prosecution of mothers while abortion is legal. Because to prove that the woman is a co-conspirator in the act, the prosecution would have to prove that there was a meeting of minds. What that means is that there was an understanding between the wrong done and the understanding of the wrong. In other words, can the court prove that mom, who was seeking this abortion and seeking to pay someone to kill her unborn child, can we illustrate that she had a full understanding at five weeks along in pregnancy about the humanity of, her, of the unborn baby, right? And what the abortion entails, 
Was she made aware of the risks? I have met women who say, oh, I always knew that abortion was wrong. I knew it was a baby. I've also met women who said that their abortion at five weeks or six weeks when they were 17, 18, 19 years old, they did not understand what they were doing. They had bought the lies that at this very early stage, it was just a blob of tissue. Um, it, was, it was like, it was pregnancy tissue. It hadn't turned into like a full human being yet. And that's obviously a lot of the fault is laid at the feet of the educational system. The fact that there are young people who actually believe that is crazy because we've known for decades that there's a human being at the moment of conception, distinct, living, and whole, smaller, but has everything they need to realize their full growth and development. So there are some women who, who say that. You can call them liars, I guess, but I've met women who say that and I don't believe they're lying. And so you have to prove a meeting of minds. You can't prosecute a woman as a co-conspirator to the act of abortion unless you can prove that she had a full understanding of what she was doing. And often she doesn't, and, even, and if she does, that does have to be illustrated. So the reason why pro-lifers have not sought criminal prosecutions of mothers is because you'd have to prove a meeting of the minds, that her understanding of the abortion act matched that of the abortion doctors. Without illustrating that, the prosecution would not be able to prosecute her the same way they prosecute the doctor. So where are pro-life legislators going to get a witness against the abortionist if the woman is implicated in the crime? So one of the reasons the pro-life movement is not sought to criminally prosecute mothers involved in an abortion is that she's actually the best individual to testify against the abortionist, right? If you criminally prosecute the mother, there is no testimony you can get against the abortionist because she is being brought up on criminal charges as well. She's a co-conspirator as well. And now the abortionist can keep operating how he's doing, oftentimes actually breaking the law uh, on how abortions can or cannot be performed. So it was a strategic approach by the pro-life movement to not pursue criminal prosecution of the mothers, get her to testify against the abortionist, and be able to bring him up on charges. So, so that is a strategic approach for strategic reasons, not necessarily because we're inconsistent or we don't believe that mom deserves any moral culpability. Certainly in a world where abortion is illegal, I believe that parents who pay someone to illegally kill their unborn child should be treated as accomplices to murder. But let's say I am completely inconsistent, right? Does this refute my pro-life syllogism? No, it doesn't, it doesn't disprove the pro-life argument as well. It's also worth pointing out that it's, this is quite hilarious. The same liberals who insist that the best way for them to fight dr uh, drugs, right, the war on drugs, is to go after the supplier and not the individual drug user. The same people who say that simultaneously call pro-lifers inconsistent and, and fakes who seek to do the same on abortion. Because if pro-lifers seek to go after the supplier, the abortionist, the abortion industry, and not the users of abortion, the women, we're called somehow inconsistent. But those same people have built off their whole war on drugs with the premise that it, it's not inconsistent or ineffective to go after the supplier while not bringing up the individual drug user on criminal charges. So just to show you a little bit of the hypocrisy from the, from the pro-choicers and liberals who bring that accusation against pro-lifers. So that's your first objection, right? That we're inconsistent because maybe we don't support the same type of criminal prosecutions for women who get abortions as we would for, let's say, Nazis who gassed the Jews. Um, even if we're inconsistent, it doesn't disprove the pro-life argument. So with all these objections, remember step two, ask the question, how does this refute my syllogism? How does this refute my direct argument? It rarely does. Here's a second objection. Oh, so you're pro-life, huh? 
So are you willing to adopt all the babies that you don't want aborted? How many babies have you adopted? If you were really pro-life, you'd, you'd probably be throwing pregnant women who are walking into an abortion center in the back of your pickup truck and forcing her to gestate that baby through all nine months and give birth and then adopt the baby. How many babies are you adopting? Oh, none? Well, I thought you were pro-life. I guess you're not. Yeah, ever heard that one? Of course, you get this one on social media all the time. It's freaking ridiculous. How does this refute my syllogism, right? How does my alleged unwillingness to adopt a baby justify an abortionist killing one? That's a good question, right? How does my alleged unwillingness to adopt a child justify an abortionist killing one? So, so let's say I'm, I, I don't have any plans to adopt. And let's say I never adopt a baby. Does my unwillingness to do that mean that the unborn is not human and therefore abortionists are justified in killing unwanted babies? Now, there's no such thing as an unwanted baby, not in the kingdom of God where every child is wanted. And, and literally not in our political um, life where there are, there are adoption waiting lists for newborns because there's not enough newborns to go around because we're aborting them all. So literally speaking, there's no such thing as an unwanted baby. But even if there was, right, that doesn't justify the abortionist killing one. Suppose I said this. Suppose I said this. Suppose I became an absolute degenerate of a husband, okay? And I started beating my wife, just, just for the, the sake of argument. And let's say you guys listening to the show um, start hearing reports about, Seth, that pro-life speaker beats his wife, okay? Let's just paint a horrific scenario for a thought experiment. And then let's say you guys start messaging me on Facebook and Instagram saying, Seth, you're not acting very pro-life. What are you doing? You're, not, you're beating your wife, dude. What if I responded to all of you guys by saying, you can't oppose me beating my wife unless you're willing to marry her. <laughs> you can't oppose me. Uh, uh, you can't oppose me opposing abortion unless you're adopting all the babies. It's the, it's the same thing, right? H how would your unwillingness to marry my wife justify me mistreating her? Or let's say it's toddlers, child abuse, right? You can't oppose me beating my toddlers unless you're willing to adopt them. <laughs> to which you would say, Seth, dude, I'm not going to adopt your kids, okay? B but my unwillingness to adopt your kids does not justify you beating them, <laughs> right? That, what a strange thing to say. But if pro-choicers say that to pro-lifers on abortion, then they're like, oh, owns you, dude. It's like, no, no, okay? Even if I don't ever adopt a single baby who was at threat for abortion, even though we plan to, that doesn't justify aborting the baby. And it doesn't disprove the pro-life argument because it doesn't attack the syllogism. It's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings, full stop. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, abortion is wrong, okay? So remember, step two is always ask how this argument um, refutes your syllogism. Here's a third objection that sort of, again, that, that, that is a distraction that doesn't actually attack the argument. Oh, you're a man, right? That, and I get this all the time, right? Like, you can't tell women what to do with their bodies. You don't have a female reproductive system. You're a man. Well, I always like to say, well, that's sort of a dangerous thing to assume in the age of Bruce Jenner, isn't it? <laughs> like, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm Sally. And there's, deep down in the recesses of Seth's soul, there's actually a Sally, and there's a uterus-identifying woman. How dare you assume my gender pro-choicer? I'm actually Sally, okay? And so I can speak to the female experience of pro-choice biological women who get abortions because I am one too, okay? Gender's fluid, baby. Uh, it's funny now that the left who's fully bought the transgenderism ideology still calls pro-life men men 
to make them shut up. Dangerous thing to assume. But here's the point. Uh, to quote Frank Beckwith, the pro-life philosopher, arguments don't have sexual organs. Arguments don't have sexual organs. If I make an argument for the pro-life position, which I just did, remember our syllogism? If I make an argument for it and you say, ah, you have a penis, well, that's sort of weird, bro. Do you have a fascination with phallics, you strange sicko? I just offered you a syllogism, an argument for the pro-life position, and you attacked my genitalia? Attack the argument, not my genitalia, you, you weird sicko, right? It is very weird when you really sort of step back and examine the attacks against the pro-life position for what they are, rather than just sort of res resorting to the ad hominem attacks in nature of the abortion debate. So attack my argument, not my genitalia. You're a man, shut up, you pro-life men. Um, is, is, does not attack the syllogism. That pro-life argument stands or falls apart from the gender of those offering those arguments. Because additionally, pro-life women make the same arguments I do for the humanity of the unborn and the inhumanity of abortion, right? So what's wrong with pro-life women making the same arguments? The pro-choice movement hates those arguments too. So it was never really about gender, right? It was about ideological uniformity. You have to be uniform and look just like the pro-choice movement, or they're going to hate you. And they treat pro-life women horribly, horribly, just like they treat pro-life men horribly. But, but don't pro-choicers love pro-choice men? But I thought men had to shut up. Shut up, you men, unless you're pro-choice and you defend killing babies and you're a man without a chest and you're a little degenerate who has abdicated your duty as a man to protect and defend the vulnerable, the women who are treated like prospects for abortion and that you probably treated it in just to get sex, and the pre-born babies you helped create and now you're paying to help kill. You're not a man. You're a pathetic excuse for a man. But if you're a pro-choice man, the pro-choice movement loves you. You'll never hear the pro-choice movement attack pro-choice men by saying, shut up. You, no uterus, no opinion. <laughs> as long as the opinion is the pro-choice opinion, they don't care if the person offering that pro-choice opinion is a man. Do you see what I mean? It was never about gender. It was about ideological uniformity. Lastly, in regards to this, you're a man attack. No uterus, no opinion. Do you want to know how many men were on the Supreme Court in 1973 when Roe v. Wade became the law of the land? Want to know how many? Yeah, all of them. Yeah, all nine people on the Supreme Court in 1973 were men. And they voted 7-2, right? Seven voted to legalize abortion through all nine months of pregnancy at the federal level, and two dissented. So uh, according to the pro-choice movement, we need to overturn Roe versus Wade immediately because those men should have had no opinion on abortion. They didn't have a uterus, therefore they shouldn't have had an opinion, and they should, certainly shouldn't, shouldn't have been using those opinions to draft, federal, to draft federal law by legislating from the bench, removing the democratic federalist voice of the people. Right? Right, pro-choice movement? Those stinking men, oh, they were pro-choice and they ruled in the way that you wanted, so you liked their opinion. So it was never about the gender, right? But they won't attack the argument, right? That's the point. Here's another one. You'll hear this one all the time. Uh, that's just your religious view. I can't tell you how many times I get this one on Facebook and Instagram comments when we have a clip that takes off. It's like, you know, uh, Seth, you weirdo, don't you know this is separation of church and state? You shouldn't be able to legislate your religious beliefs. It's like, dude, I, I literally just made a scientific case for the humanity of the baby. And philosophically, I made the point that the arguments you offer for abortion can also be used to justify infanticide and the killing of those um, who are... Um, physically or mentally um, handicapped, 
um, and those who um, might be old and need the support of others, your same arguments work to justify killing those people. That's not a religious argument. Now, I can make a religious argument, but most of the time in the public square, I don't. So they're just attacking their perception of the pro-life argument. So again, step number two, ask the question, how does this refute my syllogism? Saying, that's just a religious view? That doesn't attack the argument. You have to tell me what's wrong with my argument. Where did the premises go wrong? Because if the conclusion is wrong, that abortion is always wrong, then, then one of my premises had to have been wrong. So attack the premises in my syllogism. And, and they won't, right? They can't. Because <laughs> they can't contend on the main thing. Okay, so there's, here's a lesson from a seventh grade logic book, okay, for those of you who were homeschooled, went to charter schools, or um, maybe went to a good public school, uh, you know, which is hard to find today. <laughs> here's a, 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 a rule that we should have or, or did learn in logic in junior high or high school, that arguments are either true or false, valid or invalid, okay? Arguments are either true or false, or valid or invalid. Calling an argument religious, like, oh, that's a religious argument. That's a category mistake, okay? Arguments are not religious or non-religious, non no, no. Arguments are either true or false, valid or invalid. If they have religious presuppositions, then the argument is still true or false, valid or invalid. Does that make sense? So calling an argument religious is like asking, how tall is the number five? Hey, how tall is the number five? And you'd be like, Seth, you're making a category mistake right there. Numbers don't have heights, right? Well, it's the same thing. Calling an argument religious is a category mistake. So what if it's religious? So what if it has religious presuppositions? Should we toss out America's founding documents, right? Lincoln's second inaugural address has a lot of religious language in there, appealing to a higher power, right? Appealing to God from whom these rights come. Should we throw out uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letters from Birmingham jail? Boy, the left, the left loves the letters from Birmingham jail to which he appeals to a God, not to some, some like floating, you know, like, cloud deity, like he refers to Yahweh, he refers to the, the Judeo-Christian God. I guess we have to throw that out as well, right? Because they all have their roots in man bearing the image of God. So arguments are either true or false, valid or invalid. Calling an argument religious is a category mistake. Um, and so it doesn't actually attack the argument. It, 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 uh, it, it sort of reinterprets the argument to be, to be religious so that they can sort of discredit you on the basis of your faith rather than on the basis of your arguments. So I hope that makes sense. And here's one more sort of distraction issue that you'll hear that refuses to actually contend with the syllogism that we have offered. And that's this one. You pro-lifers just want a war on women, right? And, and, and actually, the left actually believes this. That's what's really sad. Like, there's been studies on this about how, like, the, the right, broadly speaking, like understands the left and their worldview and their presuppositions quite well, but the left does not understand the right whatsoever. They, they sit there and they scratch their heads and they just can't understand why anyone would be a conservative. It's really actually quite sad, um, but there has, the, the studies have sort of borne this out before. Many pro-choicers actually believe this about pro-lifers. It's, it's not purely or exclusively a, a rhetorical attack. It actually has some basis in in reality, in their reality, in, in how they see us. Of course, it's not reality, it's not true, but they, they're actually fully convinced that we want a war on women, that the reason anyone would be pro-life 
is because they hate women. They don't want women to have full equality. Uh, oh, but what about all the pro-life women? And they say, yeah, you've internalized the patriarchy, right? That's what they'll say. Just like they'll attack black conservatives for internalizing their whiteness or something stupid, right? That, that's what they say. They literally believe this. Um, and we just uh, covered on the podcast recently that, um, that was it Oklahoma or Arkansas? I can't remember the Oklahoma uh, pro-choice Democrat state legislator who, who did that bill that said that, oh, yeah, if you're going to ban abortion in the state after Roe v. Wade is overturned, then we're going to make fathers financially responsible from the moment of conception owned. And all the pro-lifers on Twitter were like, awesome idea, bro. Awesome. His name was Forrest something. He's like, awesome. Yes. Fully support it. And he pulled the bill. And then he apologized to pro-choicers who were mad at him for, for damaging the cause. What cause? The pro-choice cause. Because his bill was communicating that if fathers should be financially responsible from the moment of conception, responsible for what? A blob of tissue and non-person untermensch? His bill communicated that the unborn was human and deserved support of their parent. And if they deserve financial support, they certainly deserve to not be murdered in the womb. Oops! <laughs> right? Like, so, but what's my point? This Democrat Forrest something, for, I forget his last name, from Oklahoma was fully convinced in his mind that we just want a war on women, that, that we just hate women. And that's why we would be opposed to abortion, not because of the humanity of the unborn. And so he thought that he would own us and make us be like, oh, no, we don't want that. We don't want fathers financially responsible uh, because that might support women. And we want women to be held under the thumb of the patriarchy. And uh, he fully did not understand what we believe. So just to make a point, there are people who believe this, that we just want a war on women. But again, remember, step two, all of these arguments we're going through, step two is what? Ask the question, how does this refute my syllogism, my argument? So let's say I do. Let's say I do want a war on women. Let's just grant that for the sake of argument. Does that refute my syllogism? Could I want a war on women, and could the pro-life pro position still be valid? Yes, even if I was a disgusting degenerate who only wanted to end abortion, because I wanted women to be kept out of the workplace and kept in the kitchen, even if, I, let's say I wanted that, okay, the pro-life argument is still valid. You never attacked my argument. It's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being without proper justification. Therefore, abortion is wrong. That argument is still valid or invalid, true or false, regardless of if there's weird pro-lifers out there who just want a war on women. Do you see? So... It, they attack a peripheral issue or a picture they've created in their mind of pro-lifers to discredit the argument, but it's the argument that they've never actually contended against, which is what we've offered, okay? So step number one, remember, before you even think about responding in an argument or conversation over abortion, focus on those words, syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. What is our argument? Step number two, with every objection you hear, ask the question, how does this refute my pro-life argument, my pro-life syllogism? Step number three, okay, listen to this, take note when your critic assumes the unborn are not human. When through the course of their rhetoric, they just assume the unborn is not a human being. And you know what happens when you assume, right? You make an... ASS out of you and me, right? Never assume. Uh, you'll notice in pro-choice arguments, um, they won't, often they won't directly say that the unborn is not a human, right? Because it's kind of hard to do that with the embryology and the science of, of the unborn. But they'll, they'll make these arguments and, and, and the underlying assumption and the words they use and the rhetoric they resort to is this, this belief that the unborn is not fully human. And you'll see how that comes out in pro-choice arguments. So first let me give you some historical examples and then we'll dive into how this happens in the abortion debate, how pro-choice arguments 
always assume that the unborn is not fully human. There's a great example that my mentor, Scott Klusendorf, often uses, um, and that I begin to use as well, from The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, right? The Adventures of Huck Finn, probably a hard book to find today, certainly on public high school campuses. Um, and, and Huck comes back late for dinner, and his Aunt Sally is asking him why, and he, he, his excuse for why he's late for dinner is this, and, and this is a, a dialogue, a short dialogue portion from the book, okay? So why are you late, Huck Finn, right? He says, we blowed out a cylinder head. And Aunt Sally says, good gracious, anybody get hurt? And Huck Finn says, no, ma'am, killed a Negro. Aunt Sally says, well, that's, that's lucky because sometimes people do get hurt. Whoa. Do you see what just happened in that dialogue? By the way, in the book, they use a different N-word for Negro. Um, but what happened in that dialogue, right? She says, did anyone get hurt? And Huck Finn says, no, ma'am killed a Negro. Well, then he got hurt. But that's not how they see it, right? Then Aunt Sally says, well, that's lucky because sometimes people do get hurt. What's the assumption about the black man in that dialogue? That he's not fully human, that he doesn't really matter. But isn't that the heart of the argument over slavery is whether the black man and woman are persons with the equal dignity and rights as any other white person? Of course. So the language, right, just assumed that the black man was not a human, but it never proved it. It never offered a case that the black man was not a person. It just assumed it. That happens all the time in conversations over abortion. Here's a second example. When Barack Obama was still president and he was celebrating one of the Roe versus Wade anniversaries, right, he said that we need abortion because, quote, this is from Obama, because, quote, this is a nation where everyone has a right to pursue their own dreams. Everyone has a right to pursue their own dreams. Hmm. Interesting. Do you see what he assumed? If you are smart and you listen to the show a bit, you probably already see it, don't you? Obama never told us if everyone included the unborn. He just assumed that it didn't. Hey, Barack. Does everyone having a right to pursue their own dreams include unborn human beings? Of course not, because he's celebrating Roe versus Wade, which was the unborn's death sentence. Do you see? So those are two examples of how, either whether it's slavery or abortion, the language, the rhetoric, doesn't prove the unborn is not human. They don't make a case for it. It's just assumed within the course of their rhetoric. Okay, so here's some specific examples in the abortion debate. Hey, pro-lifer, you don't trust women to make their own personal decisions. You don't trust women to make their own personal healthcare family decisions. You hate women, huh? <laughs> right? You don't trust them. Well, would anyone argue that if we were killing five-year-olds? Hey, you don't trust families, dude. Hey, pro-lifer, you don't trust families to, to make decisions about whether they need to decrease one of their toddlers in their home, you know, because they have too much. Why don't you trust them to decide which toddler to kill? That's sort of narrow-minded and bigoted of you. <laughs> and the pro-choicer would go, dude, what, the, what in the world, dude? Yeah, no one should be trusted to decide which child to kill. Right, but you are saying that about the unborn. So what does that language insinuate? They've assumed the unborn is not fully human. They've never proved it, right? So here is your, your, your trigger, your tactic. The tactic that you're going to use to what? to expose their assumption. And what are they assuming again? That the unborn is not fully human. I'm gonna give you a tactic right now 
to pull out that assumption, to prove, to illustrate that the pro-choicer is assuming the unborn is not fully human without proving it. And that tactic is called trot out the toddler. Again, credit goes to my, my mentor, Scott Klusendorf. Trot out the toddler, where you apply the argument for abortion and you, you copy and paste it and use it as an argument to justify killing toddlers. You keep the, the language and the context the same. You just replace the fetus, the unborn baby, with a toddler, and you repeat their argument back to them. The argument they just gave you for defending abortion, but you, you repeat it back to them as an argument used to defend killing toddlers, and you ask them if they still accept their same form of argumentation for killing three-year-olds. When they say no, when they say no, they are telling you that they've assumed the unborn is not fully human. You see? It's brilliant. Try it out the toddler. Okay, so, so how do we use this to, to, to bring out this assumption by, by being aware of arguments that assume the unborn are not human? Here we go. Women have a right to privacy. Pro-lifer, women have a right to privacy. How dare you intrude in those private family matters? Okay, try it out the toddler. Should we allow parents to kill their toddlers as long as they do so in the privacy of their own homes? That's a privacy issue as to whether parents should be able to murder their three-year-old or drown Timmy during bath time. And you pro-lifers should not, um, you should not intrude on those family medical decisions that parents make in the privacy of their own homes. To which every pro-choicer goes, you sicko, you can't kill toddlers. And we go, why not? And the pro-choicer goes, because they're human beings. You can't kill innocent human beings. To which we say, ah, ah, oh, really? Really? It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings? Exactly. That's why I'm pro-life. You've just assumed that whatever's in the womb, the unborn, is not fully human and not deserving of the same rights as the toddler that you seemingly care so much about now. So why don't you prove to me that the unborn is not a human being with the same rights as the toddler? Tell me. Prove it to me. Debunk my pro-life argument. And they can't because they can't contend on the main thing. So you see how I, I use the toddler with the same argument, and when they reject that argument for killing toddlers, you've just proven they assume the unborn is not human. They need to prove that. The burden of proof is not on pro-lifers to prove that the unborn is not human, because we're not saying we should be able to kill whatever's in the womb. The burden of proof is on pro-choicers who say we can kill whatever's in the womb to prove that it's not a human being. Dude, you better make sure that thing is not human and doesn't have any rights before you kill it. Do you see what I mean? Here's another one. Poor women can't afford another child. You know, that's why, that's why you should become pro-choice, because when they, that woman gets pregnant, she can't afford another child, and she shouldn't be forced into financial poverty and destitution um, because she's got other kids she needs to take care of, right? <laughs> so, okay, try it out the toddler, right? I have a two-year-old in front of me right now. His parents can't afford to feed him, but they know if they execute him, uh, they can balance the checkbook by the end of the month. Should they be allowed to do that? Should they be allowed to do that? They can't afford them anyways, right? And it would really help them out financially, right? And the, the pro-choicer goes, ew, I knew you pro-lifers were sickos. Uh, no, it was a thought experiment. And if you oppose killing the two-year-old, but you support killing the same baby in the womb, then you've assumed the unborn are not human. Also notice when they say this, they're all, notice how even the words assume the unborn are not human. Poor women can't afford another child. 
uh, no, they already have another child in their womb, <laughs> right, uh, who's just located six inches away and has the same rights as their siblings. What about this one? Abortion prevents child abuse. This one is really sick. <laughs> this was the, uh, by the way, this was the, the Freakonomics argument from the, uh, was it the 80s or 90s? And it was, it was saying that, you know, with abortion, we've actually really helped decrease crime because the, 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 the babies that would have been born but were aborted were children whose parents were in sort of destitute, difficult circumstances. And those circumstances, had they had that baby, probably would have created more criminals. This, I mean, I know it's really sick, right? And so abortion helps decrease child abuse as well as crime by killing the children who might have had more difficult lives and become less uh, healthy citizens. So isn't that just great? So we, we kill people before they can commit crimes because maybe they'll be born in a, in a societal context that will uh, lead them to commit crimes. Yay, we're such a just society. I mean, it's really, really quite sick. Um, but that's a very popular argument you used to hear a couple decades ago about abortion. So abortion prevents child abuse and crime because, you know, um, the babies who were aborted by their parents um, would not have been able to handle more children, right? And those children probably would have ended up being abused, likely. And so we killed them in the womb, right? And so, so we spared them child abuse later had they been born. To which, of course, the pro-lifer goes, well, no, abortion is child abuse. What do you mean abortion prevents child abuse? Abortion is child abuse. It's the worst form because it kills innocent human beings. And then says, you're welcome. You're welcome. Now you won't have a difficult life later. It's like, dude, you just murdered me, dude. What the f <laughs> Right? See what I'm talking about? Uh, but that's the claim. Abortion prevents child abuse. Okay, here, how about this? Should we kill two-year-olds to prevent the abuse of five-year-olds? Because, you know... Um, some of those two-year-olds, um, if we don't kill them now, by the time they're five and dad has left the home and mom's really poor and she starts resorting to the drink, she's going to become abusive to when, in like three years. So, And I can see that that will happen uh, because I'm just an omniscient pro-choicer. So we just need to kill all the two-year-olds now to prevent the abuse of when they're five. And the pro-choicer goes, you Sicko. It's like, no, once again, I'm just, I'm putting your same arguments uh, in the context of postnatally, <laughs> outside the womb, and you reject your same arguments as applied to those babies after they're born. So that shows that you've assumed through the course of your rhetoric that the unborn is not fully human and deserving of the same rights they're in, okay? Last one, women will die from back alley abortions. And we've all heard this one, right? Okay, it goes something like this. If abortion is made illegal, women will get them anyways. They will get them anyways, and they will be forced, they say, ooh, forced into dangerous back alley abortion clinics where, they'll, where, where women will be killed by the thousands by dangerous coat hanger illegal abortions, and you won't believe the kind of blood that we're going to have on our hands. Okay, this is tantamount to saying that because some people die trying to kill others, the state should make it safe and legal for them to do so. Because some people die who? the mothers, trying to kill others who are others, the unborn child, the state should make it safe and legal for them to do so. Very strange argument, right? And what a low view of women, by the way. This argument is incredibly sexist, right? To assume as a pro-choicer that when abortion is made illegal, women will, have, will be so intrinsically weak of strength and soul that they will, they will pursue killing their unborn child illegally 
and harming themselves as well because they just can't handle being a mother or embracing motherhood for the child that they're already a mother to. While pro-choice, that's a pretty sexist low view of women. I have a higher view of women, namely that when abortion's made illegal, most women will embrace motherhood for the child they're already a mother to and not arrange a dangerous illegal murder of their own unborn offspring who in 99% of cases they created consensually. Wow, a little bit of sexism showing there, pro-choicer, right? But um, imagine making this argument in any other context. What argument? Because some people die trying to kill others, the state should make it safe and legal for them to do so. Hey, there's two bank robbers robbing banks in Southern California. They've successfully robbed two banks, and they're attempting to rob a third. As they're running out with the bags of cash from the bank, a law-abiding citizen with a concealed carry permit pulls out his gun and shoots one of the bank robbers in the leg. The other bank robber leaves his buddy bleeding out on the side of the sidewalk and runs away with the cash. This other bank robber is now bleeding out close to death on the sidewalk. Why? Because he did something both illegal and immoral. Illegal, robbed a bank. Immoral, uh, stole people's money. So here's the solution, guys. We need to legalize bank robbery. I know, we need to legalize bank robbery because bank robbers are getting harmed or killed in the process of doing something both illegal and immoral, and that's, that's not acceptable. Well, how about school shootings? We need to legalize school shootings because sometimes mentally disturbed 17-year-old seniors in high school walk onto campus to shoot their peers and an armed security guard shoots the would-be school shooter before the would-be school shooter can kill other people. Guys, school shooters are getting killed in the process of trying to kill others, so we need to make it safe and legal for them to kill others. What in the world are you talking about? That's the same argument. Because some moms will die trying to kill their children, we need to make it safe and legal for them to kill their children, their pre-born children. So do you see if you apply that to any other context, the pro-choicer rejects that application of their reasoning, but they accept it in abortion. Why? Because they have assumed the unborn is not fully human or deserving of the rights therein. Okay, so that's step number three. Take note when your critic assumes the unborn are not human, but of course they'll never prove it. Step number four. Listen carefully for objections designed to cloud the real issue. Listen carefully for objections designed to cloud the real issue. And these are your true rabbit trail arguments, if you will, okay? These are your true rabbit, tail, rabbit trail arguments. They intentionally cloud the abortion issue and try to come up with some objection that disproves the argument, but it, again, it never attacks the syllogism that we've laid out for the pro-life position. So here are some examples. Have you ever heard people say, well, haven't you heard of twinning? Haven't you heard of twinning that after conception happens, um, but before implantation, the early zygote can split and it becomes two human beings? So therefore, that proves that, the, that um, there was no human being before the split because human beings can't just split, can they, right? So they, they try to use the example of twinning to say, well, obviously then, I mean, it wasn't a human being before the split, because can you do that? Hey, pro-lifer, can you do that? Can you just split and become two people right now? Oh no, no, human beings can't do that? Well, then I guess the early zygote is not a human being. Owned, that's what they say with twinning, right? Uh, okay, here's a flatworm on the table. It's a flatworm. I just cut it in half. Do you know what happens when you cut a flatworm in half? You get two flatworms. Does that mean that there wasn't a flatworm prior to the split? No, there was still a flatworm prior to the split. How does it follow that because a living entity may split, 
that it wasn't a whole human being prior to the split. It doesn't follow. They're just assuming it. By the way, we can clone human beings, right? We're not at the stage to be able to do it, you know, across the board, right? But there are things called somatic and nuclear cell transfer, right? You, you can clone a human being. So assuming that we can clone you through your somatic cells, then does that mean you're not a human being now because there is the potential for me to clone you? No, of course not. So it just clouds the real issue, right? Just because a, a uh, living entity may split, it doesn't mean that there was no living being prior to the split. Here's another example of, of objections that try to cloud the real issue. Um, they say miscarriage, right? They say, well, nature is the biggest abortionist on the planet. You know, spontaneous miscarriages happen all the time and, and the baby just dies. So uh, why don't you have a problem with mother nature aborting all of those children through spontaneous miscarriages? And why aren't you mourning those, by the way? If you're not mourning those the same way you do abortions, it shows that you're not really pro-life and you don't really believe the unborn is a whole human being with the same rights as a toddler. And that's what they say, right? It's like, dude, do you not understand the difference between accidental or spontaneous and intentional? Abortion intentionally kills a human being. It, it, you schedule it, you show up, and, and you pay for the murder, right? A miscarriage is, by its very definition, accidental. Nobody intends it to happen. So yes, we don't mourn accidents the same way we mourn murders, right? Because it has a more evil aspect to murder when it's done intentionally. So spontaneous miscarriage is one thing, but intentionally killing is another. By the way, how does it follow that because nature spontaneously triggers a miscarriage, that A, the embryos in question are not human, or B, that I may intentionally kill them, right? Again, the, the miscarriage that nature is the biggest abortionist of all clouds the real issue. It doesn't actually focus on our case for the humanity of the unborn. Okay, yes, tragically, a lot of miscarriages do happen spontaneously. How does that prove that the unborn is not human being from the moment of conception? And then how does it prove that I can intentionally kill them just because nature spontaneously causes miscarriages? It doesn't. They're just, they're just stupid rabbit trail distraction arguments. Here's another one. They say women grieve newborns more than miscarriages, right? Hey, pro-lifer, come on. Women grieve losing their infants a lot more than a miscarriage. And if they don't mourn the miscarriage, to the same degree that they mourn the infant, that proves, that proves that they don't really believe that the unborn is as much of a human and has as much rights as their infant, or else they'd be just as distraught about a miscarriage as they are about their newborn. Well, it, it, it bears repeating that many women do mourn their miscarriages just as much as they would mourn losing their infant. It's a very unfeeling, disgusting thing for pro-choicers to say to assume about women that a miscarriage means less to them than losing their infant. But let's say that's true. For the sake of argument, let's grant that. My feelings about something don't change what it really is, right? If I don't mourn my wife's miscarriage at six weeks, as much as I would mourn my four-year-old son being killed, that doesn't change the reality that the unborn human being was just as much a human being with just as much a right to life as my four-year-old son because my feelings about something don't change what it is. Does that make sense? For example, would the unborn be any less human if nobody grieved them? 
right? Let's say that all pro-lifers were extremely callous individuals who only wanted to end abortion to, uh, to keep women under the thumb of the patriarchy, and they did not actually mourn the loss of unborn human life. Would that mean that the unborn were not human because nobody mourned them? No, it wouldn't. They would still be fully human because that's what follow the science says, that it's a human being from the moment of conception. And the only difference between the unborn and us is a matter of size and dependency and level of development. But it doesn't mean that they're less human with less rights. Okay, so my feelings about something don't change what it really is. But they try to say that because maybe women grieve their, their infants dying more than their miscarriages, that therefore that proves that the unborn lost in miscarriage is not as human. Really, 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 really stupid. Let's, let's apply this one more way to prove how stupid this argument is. I would grieve the death of my own child far more than I would grieve the death of 500 children in India dying from starvation. And if you think, Seth, that you're a sicko, uh, no, you would too. You would too, wouldn't you? You would grieve the death of your five-year-old, 10-year-old, 15-year-old, 20-year-old, 40-year-old, child more than you would ever mourn a headline about 500 children in India dying from starvation. Does your unequal treatment of, of mourning prove that the 500 children in India were less human than your child? Of course not. What a stupid thing to say. But that's what they say about women who maybe grieve newborns more than babies lost in miscarriage, okay? So what are we talking about? We're talking about objections that are designed to cloud the real issue. And what's the real issue? It is always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, abortion is wrong. That's the pro-life syllogism. And these are just objections designed to cloud the real issue. What about this one, the burning research lab? Have you heard this one? It, it, this is like the magic bullet pro-choice argument that pro-aborts use to try to, to, try to show right, that, that the pro-life position can be debunked with one thought experiment. It goes something like this. We addressed this on the show months and months ago. So for you guys who've listened to the show for a long time, you've heard me address this one. But they say something like this. They say, okay, there's, there's a research lab that's on fire, and inside that research lab, there are 1,000 frozen embryos okay, that, that parents uh, created for, for in vitro fertilization. There's 1,000 frozen embryos in there. Those are persons. They have eternal souls. And, uh, and the, the research lab is on fire. Okay, And you run in there, and in one corner, there are the 1,000 frozen embryos. And in the other corner, there's a toddler. There's a toddler, okay? And you can only save the 1,000 embryos or you can save the toddler. You don't have time to save both. The building is ablaze. Now pick. And so most pro-lifers will say the toddler. And I also say the toddler. And they say, ha, 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 I can't believe you said that. I owned you. I owned you because... Who would ever choose to save one human being over a thousand human beings? You're not really pro-life. I just owned you. You're not even pro-life. You just disproved your whole pro-life argument. And that, that, so that's the burning research lab, okay? But how does saving one human over others mean that those left behind were not fully human? How does saving one human being over others mean that those left behind were not fully human, okay? Right. In, it was my decision to save the toddler. Was that some magical thing? Like, was that decision just sprinkled with fairy dust that sprinkled over to the thousand embryos and it, it caused them to become non-humans again? No, of course not. They were still human beings, right? So me not saving them didn't prove that they weren't human beings or that they had less value. There are reasons for why pro-lifers say the toddler 
and not the thousand frozen embryos. And this has to do with triage. Are you familiar with triage in sort of medicine? It's like, it's when you have to decide who to save, what level of treatment to give. So for example, here's an example. Um, it, did you know that if a family drives off, drives off of a, a bridge into the lake or into like a river or the ocean and the car's drowning and the divers and the police, they dive in to help save the family and there's children and the mom and dad in the car, did you know that, that, uh, that they, will, they will save the parents first and not the children? No, this is true. This is like medical practice. This is what, how they would apply the triage scenario. Why? Because the adults have a significantly higher chance of surviving. than the, So when you have to pick in that moment, you're going to pick those who have the highest likelihood of surviving that incident. And tragically, it's actually not the child. Did, so does that mean that those children are not persons and they're not humans and they had no right to life? Because when forced to choose, you chose the adults and not the children. No, of course not. It doesn't prove that at all. By the way, if I enter, let's flip the script. Let's flip the thought experiment. If I enter a burning classroom and in, and in one corner are 20 toddlers and in the other corner is my son, I'm going to save my son, right? Did that prove that the other toddlers were not persons, were not humans, and had no right to life? Because my decision magically made the rest of the victims not persons. No, of course not. But that's what they're trying to show to pro-lifers, is that if you save the toddler over the thousand frozen embryos, they've just proven that, that the pro-life argument is debunked, right? Um, and so the reason why you save the toddler and not the thousand embryos is because of the triage scenario. Because uh, of those thousand frozen embryos, they would have to survive the, the thawing, because they're frozen, the thawing, and then they would have to survive being released into mom's uterus to hopefully implant, and many of them will not survive that. And then after the ones implant, they have to survive uh, the first few weeks of prenatal development so that they won't, they won't be a miscarriage. By the time you get down to how many uh, babies will be born from those thousand frozen embryos, you're at a very small number. Whereas the toddler has the highest likelihood of surviving the smoke that he's inhaled in the burning research lab. So does that make sense? So you apply this, this triage scenario. Additionally, uh, unfortunately, not very many people will mourn the loss of the thousand frozen embryos, but, but hundreds of people potentially, family, friends, will mourn the loss of the toddler. So you take all of these things into consideration, right? But that decision doesn't prove that those I left behind were not humans and had no right to life, right? Does that make sense? And lastly, the burning research lab argument fails because it, it sets up a scenario to answer the question, who do you save? Who do you save? The toddler or the thousand frozen embryos? Is that the question at the heart of the abortion debate, who do you save? No, what's the question at the heart of the abortion debate? Whom can you kill? Whom can you kill? Can you kill the preborn? So imagine if I said, I say, I'm gonna save the, um, I'm gonna save my toddler, and on my way out of the burning classroom, I'm gonna shoot all of the other toddlers in the head. And the, the pro-choicer would go, whoa, whoa, dude. Well, yeah, exactly. That's really what's at the heart of the abortion debate is whom can you kill? That would certainly not give me the right to kill everyone else on the way out of the build, building, but that's what abortion says we can do to unborn children. So that's why that one fails. Uh, let, me, let me burn through a few more here. Uh, molar pregnancies, have you heard this one? They say that, that, that some um, conceptions don't conceive a new human being. It's just a molar pregnancy. Um, and so therefore... Not all um, things that 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 um, 
result from conception or human beings. So if you can have molar pregnancies, it shows that not every pregnancy and unborn is really a human being, right? Uh, and, and this one really misunderstands molar pregnancies and, and how conception happens. Molar pregnancies don't start as human and morph into tumors. They were never human, right? So the pro-choice is trying to say, look, you can have a human being from conception that turns into a molar pregnancy, which is not a human. So, so how, could then, how could you then say that the unborn is always human? Right, that, that's not how molar pregnancies work, right? It doesn't start as a human and, and, and morph into a, a molar pregnancy or into a tumor. Molar pregnancies never started out as human beings, right? Um, sometimes that embryo is really a tumor and the embryos morph into tumors. So do they have rights, <laughs> right? Um, of course not. So that's, that's sort of how that, that argument clouds the real issue. The next one is they say sperm and egg are alive, right? They, so they're saying, well, uh, you say the unborn is alive, that that's a human being, but so are sperm and egg. Sperm and egg are alive too. So um, how could that, how could, are you saying that every guy who masturbates um, should be thrown into prison because he's committing mass homicide? It's one of the more stupid arguments you hear. Uh, no, because they're understanding the difference between parts and holes. Sperm or egg, right, um, are part of what is required to create a whole human being. Just like my skin cells, right? My skin cells contain my DNA in them. They're part of me, but it's not a whole human being, right? When I scratch my skin cells off my palm, I'm not committing mass homicide because those are not whole human beings. I'm the whole human being, right? So they misunderstand parts and holes. Sperm and egg are, par are merely parts of a larger human being. They're not a whole human being. They're not persons. Then they say, well, people disagree on when human life begins. Right? A lot of people don't agree with you, pro-lifer, that human life begins at the moment of conception. So therefore, therefore, how can you be confident that you're right? Well, well, the absence of consensus does not mean an absence of truth. Just because there's not 100% agreement that human life begins at the moment of conception doesn't prove that the unborn is not human or that we shouldn't protect them. <laughs> there was massive absence of consensus regarding slavery, wasn't there? A lot of people <clears throat> believe that the black man and woman were not persons and were subhuman and didn't have the same rights as white people. Did that mean that there was no truth to the question? That we couldn't find the truth? That there was human equality between all the races? Of course not. We could still pursue that truth. So an absence of consensus does not mean an absence of truth. But notice how all of these arguments um, are, cloud the real issue of our pro-life syllogism and argument. They're just trying to create confusion because they can't actually contend on that primary argument, that it's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion does that. Therefore, abortion is always wrong. Okay, step number five, listen carefully for arguments that undermine human equality. Uh, what do I mean by this? I mean, listen carefully for arguments for abortion that in their very nature can be used to justify mistreating born people as well, who fail to meet the, the litmus test for personhood, right, that, that fail to meet the categories and functions and abilities that the pro-choicer says the unborn must meet. Listen carefully for arguments that can't make sense of our human equality because those same arguments would endanger the rights of born people outside the womb as well. Listen carefully for arguments that undermine or destroy human equality. So when, you know, when you're at work, look around, you know, look around the room when you're at work and ask yourself the question, what makes us all equal? What makes us equal? Well, the only thing that makes us equal is a human nature. We don't have skin color, age, gender, ethnicity, IQ, musical ability, artistic ability. 
We don't have any of these things in common. What's the only thing we have in common? A human nature, right? And when did we get a human nature? When we became human, and we became human at the moment of conception. The secular worldview cannot account for human equality because the secular worldview says the universe came from nothing and was caused by nothing. So human beings are just cosmic accidents. There's no dignity attached to the individual. There's no higher being that, that, uh, that created us and therefore ascribed value and worth to us. We're just cosmic blobs. We're just a result of atoms banging around in the universe. And this naturally, of course, leads to the survival of the fittest, right? Because only our functional abilities can grant us value, they say. Our value is not found in our human nature that we had from the moment of conception. No, it, it's what we can provide. It's how we function. And so if only our functional abilities grant us value, um, and our functional, then our functional abilities are what, are what ground our value and rights, then those with more of them have greater rights than those with less. Do you understand what I mean? And, and uh, Abraham Lincoln discussed this as well, by the way. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, in his response to racist arguments for slavery, said, you say A is white and B is black. It is color then the lighter having the right to enslave the darker. Take care, by this argument, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with a skin fairer than your own. Lincoln's saying that you're grounding rights racist in skin color, but skin color comes in varying degrees. Not even Caucasians have the same shade of skin color. So if, if, if skin color grounds our rights and rights come in varying degrees, then, and skin color comes in varying degrees, rather, it follows that rights come in varying degrees. So the albino rules over all, and everyone with a shade of skin slightly darker than the albino is slightly less of a person than the albino. Do you see the problem with grounding rights and things that come in varying degrees? That's what pro-choice arguments do as well. The problem with grounding the child's right to life in her functions and capacities, or lack thereof, is that many born people will be disqualified from the right to life as well. Born people who fail to possess those same functions, right? And this is the biggest argument for abortion. They say that rights are based on functions. How you function, not who you are. This is called functionalism versus the endowment view of personhood. Pro-lifers hold to the endowment view of personhood. We've been endowed with inalienable rights, right? That among these are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, if, there, if we were endowed, that means there's an endower, right? Who endowed us with inalienable rights? The creator, God himself, right? The functionalist account for personhood, uh, you know, contrasted with the endowment view of rights, says that you only have rights, right? Namely, the right to life. You're only a person. You only count as one of us if you can function in a certain way. And if you can't prove these cognitive abilities and functions or accidental properties, then you're disqualified from personhood. You're not one of us, okay? And, and this really is the Darwinianist worldview, right? That the strong kill the weak because the strong are more fit than the weak and they can do more, therefore they're more of a person. So what are some of the functions that the pro-choicer says the unborn fails to meet and is therefore not a person? We'll go through some right now, and I'll show you how there are other class of born human beings who also fail to meet the cognitive ability functional checkboxes for personhood that the pro-choicer is using to dehumanize the pre-born. So therefore, those pro-choice arguments, what, undermine human equality for all human beings, not just their victim class of the pre-born. So they say the unborn must be self-aware right? The unborn doesn't know they're being aborted. They don't have self-awareness yet. They don't know they exist yet. 
So therefore, abortion doesn't take away any of their rights because they're not even aware of their own existence. They're not self-aware. You'll hear that as one of the functions that pro-choicers say the unborn must sort of meet or possess to be a person. But infants are not self-aware either. The best science has proven that infants are not self-aware until months after birth, right? And you know this if you've had a newborn. If you hold up your two-month-old in the mirror with a cute little outfit, is your two-month-old saying, wow, mom, thanks for the cute outfit. I really am a cute baby Jack, and I'm aware of myself as an autonomous individual who's never existed before and will never exist again as a rational creature who has moral culpability and accountability as one who can understand and make sense of my own rights and freedom. <laughs> no, of course not. Infants are not self-aware until months after birth. Can we kill infants for not being self-aware? Of course not, right? Can I kill you if you're in a coma? Can I slit your throat because you're not self-aware? Of course not. You see what I mean? What about consciousness, right? We're going through these rights, that, that, uh, these, these functions that they say the unborn does not possess and therefore they have no rights. Oh, the unborn is not conscious yet, right? Well, neither are those in a coma. Neither are you when you're unconscious. Neither are you when you're sleeping. You're not fully conscious either. Can I kill you? In fact, what if your grandpa was in a coma in the hospital and so he wasn't conscious? And you and your family were having that difficult conversation in the waiting room about whether to remove life support from grandpa, okay? And then let's say you did decide to remove life support from grandpa. But as you're coming to that final determination, I slip into the hospital room and I take out a box cutter and I slit your grandpa's throat. He's dead now. And then you come in and you find blood all over his body and, uh, and he's dead. Um, well, are you outraged? Are you angry? I mean, you have no right to be, right? Because you were going to pull life support anyways. Remember? You were going to remove life support anyways. So grandpa was going to die anyways. So really, it's the same thing. Really, me slitting his throat with a box cutter, it's the same thing as you removing life support because the end result was the same. He died, right? Does anyone think that that's the same? No. But grandpa wasn't conscious. He was in a coma, just like the preborn who's not conscious. Therefore, grandpa didn't have any rights anyway. So what are you complaining about? To which you would say, Seth, you disgusting sicko. Exactly. Because it's not the same thing. Because it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings simply because they're not conscious. Okay? What about desires? Have you ever heard someone say, well, the unborn doesn't have any desires. Like, they don't have a desire for a right to life. They don't know that they want to continue living. So what's the big deal, right? They have no desires anyways. And so pro-choicers will say, if you don't have a desire for something, you don't really have a right to that thing. So if you don't desire a right to life and you have no awareness of your right to life, then I haven't violated your right to life by aborting you in the womb. So we only have rights if we have desires for, for those said rights. Interesting. Well, people with suicidal tendencies don't have a desire to go on living, do they? Right? If you have suicidal tendencies and you're trying to kill yourself, uh, by definition, you don't have a desire to go on living. Oh, just like the unborn doesn't have a desire to go on living. So can we murder people with suicidal tendencies before they kill themselves? Because they don't have a desire to go on living just like the fetus. Of course not. What about Buddhists who reach nirvana, if, they, if, if that's even possible? What's nirvana? Nirvana is allegedly you get rid of all desires. Well, if a Buddhist reaches nirvana and gets rid of all desires, I assume he's also gotten rid of his desire for a right to life, just like the unborn doesn't have a desire for a right to life. So we can kill Buddhists now who reach nirvana, right? Because they're not persons because they don't have any desires. No, of course not. Do you see how these arguments undermine human equality for all human beings? What about ability to feel pain? Pro-choicers will say that's another function that the unborn must possess to be a person. The unborn doesn't feel any pain, so what's it to him? Really? Whoa! You, you aware of the condition called congenital analgesia? 
It's also called congenital insensitivity to pain. It's a condition in which you cannot feel any pain. Oh, you mean just like the unborn may not be able to feel pain at a certain stage of development. Can we kill people with congenital analgesia because like the pre-born at a certain stage of development, they also can't feel any pain? Therefore, they're not persons with rights, right? No, of course not. What a stupid thing to say. And then lastly, viability. They say, well, the, the unborn's not viable. So until they're viable and they can survive outside the womb, then they're not persons with rights. Well, infants are not viable either, right? They can't survive apart from support, right? What happens if you leave an infant in the crib and do nothing? They die and you're charged with infanticide, right? <laughs> but mom could say, well, my body, my choice. My breasts, my choice. My breasts are part of my body and my baby was dependent on my breasts. So my baby was dependent on my body. My body, my choice, right? The, the infants are not fully viable. They're dependent on their parents or adults. And we certainly can't kill them because they're not viable. So this is called the performance view of persons, the functionalist account for persons, which says your value and right to life is dependent on your immediately exercisable abilities and capacities. And unless you can function in this way and meet these cognitive abilities, functions, and accidental properties, you're not a person. But do you notice how all of those pro-choice arguments that dehumanize the unborn also dehumanize the born and others who fail to meet that same litmus test for personhood. So step five, listen carefully for arguments that undermine human equality. And by the way, pro-abortion philosophers have admitted before that their arguments for abortion kind of make them a little bit uncomfortable because, because those arguments undermine human equality for all human beings. Pro-choicers have admitted this, namely Jeff McMahon. Jeff McMahon wrote a book, I think, called The Ethics of Killing, um, and he's a pro-abortion philosopher. I forget at which university. And he admitted this point that the pro-abortion position cannot make sense of or defend human equality. Here's what he said. This is crazy. He said, all this leaves me profoundly uncomfortable. It seems virtually unthinkable to abandon our egalitarian commitments. Yet the challenges to our position, what challenges? The pro-life the pro-life movement's challenges. The challenges to our position support skepticism about the compatibility of our beliefs with the fact that the properties on which our moral status appear are all matters of degree. Okay, what's he saying? He's saying I am grounding rights in functions and capacities which come in varying degrees. Self-awareness comes in varying degrees because are some people more self-aware than others? Yes, right? Desires come in varying degrees because do some people have more desires than others? Yes. Consciousness comes in varying degrees because are some people more conscious than others? Yes. Ability to feel pain comes in varying degrees, right? Because do some people have a higher pain tolerance than others? Yes. So these functions, Jeff McMahon is saying, he's saying that the properties on which our moral status appears are all matters of degree because he's linking your moral status, your, your value as a human being, with the certain properties or functions I just went through. Does that make sense? So he's saying that the pro-life movement's uh, critiques do support skepticism about the compatibility of our pro-choice beliefs with the fact that these properties on which our moral status appears are all matters of degree. They come in varying degrees. So he says, it is hard to avoid the sense that our egalitarian commitments rest on distressingly insecure foundations. Meaning egalitarianism, he doesn't mean like in the theological sense, like women should be able to preach in church. He means egalitarianism in terms of equality, like men and women are fundamentally equal. He's saying it's hard to avoid the fact that our equality commitments, our egalitarian commitments, rest on very insecure foundations 
foundations, right? Because the properties on which you're saying personhood appear are all matters of degree, which means those who have a greater possession of those properties would be more of a person than those with less. And Jeff McMahon is admitting this about his own support of abortion. Very interesting. So it's only the biblical worldview that can account for human equality because it says that we hold to the endowment view of personhood, that we're endowed by God with these inalienable rights that we have from the moment we're human beings. Therefore, no one can grant them or take them away but God himself. We're endowed with intrinsic dignity because we're image bearers of God. Um, so that's step number five, is to listen carefully for these arguments that undermine human equality. Step number six, and here's our last one, ask good questions. Ask good questions to make people think about abortion. There's not a lot of thinking that goes on in the mind of a pro-choicer, is it? Or at least not a lot of good thinking. Um, and this is called the Socratic method, the, you know, Socrates. The Socratic method is sort of the art of asking good questions. And here are some of those questions. What do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? And have you considered the implications of your view? What do you mean by that? Oh, I'm, I'm for women's rights to choose abortion. What do you mean by abortion? Make them define it, right? How did you come to that conclusion? Why, another way to ask that is, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that women need abortion to be equal? How did you come to the conclusion that the unborn is not a person? Why do you believe that? Force them to, to offer a rationale for their beliefs. And then have you considered the implications of your view? And th this means, have you considered, right, have what? Have you considered that self-awareness comes in varying degrees? And so those with less of a self-awareness would be less of a person than those with more. Have you considered that there are born people who cannot feel pain either? So if you can kill the unborn because they can't feel pain, can we kill born people who can't feel pain, right? Have you considered the implications of your view? And that's when you just apply pro-choice ideas and, and, and link it to their consequences for all human beings. Have you considered the implications of accepting the pro-choice belief? Here's an example of this. I, I, I once spoke at a Catholic, all-girls Catholic high school in Long Beach area a few years ago. And during the Q&A, a woman stood up and she said, Seth, I'm not for abortion. Okay, I'm not for abortion. I'm not pro-abortion. I'm just for the choice of the woman. I'm just for choice, right? And I said, I said what choice? What choice? Right? What do you mean by that? What do you mean by choice, abortion? What choice? And she said, abortion. She just said, abortion. That's the choice I mean. To which I said, and what is abortion? What is abortion? And in a Freudian slip, she said, killing a baby. She said that in front of the whole audience, the whole student body. She said, killing a baby. And I said, oops. You just admitted that it's a baby. The choice you're defending is baby killing. You just said it yourself. Now, that's not always going to happen. But through asking good questions, you can often get to the truth. So I told her, I said, can I repeat back to you what you just told me? According to you, you're not for abortion. You're just for the choice of women to kill their babies. You just said it. That is being for abortion. And that is the same thing many racists said about slavery. They argued they weren't for slavery. They were just for the choice of plantation owners to decide whether to buy blacks and treat them like cattle. Well, she didn't really like that response. But again, I was carrying her ideas and position to their logical conclusion. So here are other good questions to help people think. Okay, here are some good questions. Are you deeply interested in doing what is right or are you committed to a point of view no matter what? Are you deeply interested in doing what is right or are you deeply committed to a certain point of view no matter what? And that's going to force them to, to answer the belief of whether they're truly tolerant and able to hear other perspectives or, th or they don't care and they're committed to their belief system, no matter the objections offered against their position. Here's another good question to ask people in conversations on abortion. Ask them, are you, uh, when confronted with a good argument against the position you hold, what is your obligation? 
When confronted with a good argument against a position that you hold, what is your obligation? If you're intellectually honest, you should say, I should reconsider my position, or I should change my position, right? So ask that question as well. Uh, here's another good argue, a question to ask where you, you go back to articulating our pro-life syllogism. Remember our pro-life argument. Say this, hey, I'm going to lay out a brief syllogism for the pro-life position, and I'd like to hear you say where you think it goes wrong. I'd like to hear where you think it goes wrong. Here it is. Uh, it's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Uh, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Uh, therefore, abortion is wrong. Can you tell me where you think that argument goes wrong? And force them to contend with that argument. Here's another good question. Hey, why are racism and sexism wrong? Why are racism and sexism wrong? Isn't it because we pick out surface differences that don't truly matter? Because race doesn't matter to human dignity. Sex doesn't matter to human dignity because they're all human beings. Why are racism and sexism wrong? Isn't it because we pick out surface differences that don't really matter? Just like abortion picks out surface differences that don't really matter. If it's wrong to hurt people because of their skin color and gender, why is it okay to hurt them because they're smaller, less developed, and more dependent? Right, that's a good question. Here's another good question. If there are no objective truths, and that's what pro-choicers say, right? That's just your truth, right? If there are no objective truths, why should I be tolerant of other views? Where does the obligation to respect other views come from? Because if there's no objective truths, then your pro-choice position is just your truth. But my pro-life position is just my truth. So why should my truth give way to your truth? And therefore, you have no right to oppose me trying to pass legislation to protect the pre-born and prevent women from getting abortions because I'm just living out my truth. Remember, all truth is relative anyways, baby. Why are you so intolerant of my truth? <laughs> right? It's another good question to ask. And then if you want a whole list of great questions to ask pro-choicers, we have an episode, go back and unaborted. It's called 10 Questions for Pro-Choicers. That's it, 10 Questions for Pro-Choicers. Go back and listen to that one if you want a whole list of great questions to ask pro-choicers. So this is, uh, this is your evergreen episode for smart answers to tough critics. Let's go through step one. Before ever responding in an argument for abortion, focus like a laser on three key words, syllogism, 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 and then lay out the pro-life syllogism. Step number two, with every objection to your pro-life position, ask them the question, how does this refute my syllogism? Remember, say, so, so what? So what does that have to do with my pro-life argument? Step number three, take note when your critic assumes the unborn are not human. Be aware of arguments that through the course of their language and rhetoric merely assume the unborn are not human without proving it. Step number four, listen carefully for objections designed to cloud the real issue, confuse the real issue that don't focus on the pro-life argument. Step number five, listen carefully for arguments that undermine human equality by grounding rights in things that come in varying degrees, certain properties or functions or cognitive abilities, like self-awareness, consciousness, desires, ability to feel pain, viability, brain activity. And then make the point that if you ground rights in things that come in varying degrees, it follows that rights come in varying degrees, so human equality is destroyed. And step number six, ask good questions to help people think about abortion. We went through some of those, and you can ask questions like, what do you mean by that? Why do you believe that? How did you come to that conclusion? And have you considered the implications of your beliefs? And then go to our old episode, 10 Questions for Pro-Choicers, to get very specific questions you can direct towards your pro-choice friends. So I hope this was helpful and fun. Uh, you can always save this one, go back and listen to it. The more you listen to it, the more it'll get ingrained in your head, and the more prepared you'll be to be an ambassador for the unborn and a voice for the unborn. Share this with your pro-choice friends. As always, leave the show a rating and review. We really appreciate it. It helps us reach more people. Give it five stars. 
write down a review of what you think about the show. Uh, share it on social media. Share it with your friends as well. If you want to support the show and help us reach more people, go to patreon.com forward slash unaborted, patreon.com forward slash unaborted. Check out the tiers and the perks you get for supporting the show. It helps us reach more people, expand the production value, bring on more guests, and begin creating more street content on the streets, applying these ideas in a conversational context to get people to change their minds, change lives, change hearts, and save lives as well. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. (laughs) 